Selkie by Anke Okay. I'd just taken the lid from the saucepan to stir the fish stewing in there when McGregor began knocking at my kitchen door. The door had been rattling on and off with a high wind all evening, but this knocking was persistent and panicked, as if he were using both fists to pound down the poor rain-sodden wood. I lifted the plank from the door. I would have just opened it a crack, but the weather pushed it all the way open. McGregor, hair fell in a wave of heavy rain and gust. I shoved the door shut and replanked it. Well, now you're in, will you take a seat? I offered McGregor a seat at my table and put some drink in a cup for him. He took the drink down in one swallow, coughing from its kick. He wiped his hair from across his forehead and thanked me. I peered at him. In this light, everything unusual in my kitchen seemed murky. I could see the things that belonged to me well enough. The chopping knife gleaming in the firelight and the hair hung up on the wall. Everything in their own natural places. Only McGregor stood out in his darkness. His body heaving a silhouette of its self across the table, bringing the cold of outdoors unwelcome through the room. He had an oilskin satchel strapped across him, and this he jealously kept with one hand, thus obliging me to keep my eye on it as well. What's there then? I asked, as reasonable as you might ask a man in these circumstances. McGregor rolled his eyes in their sockets. They were red, shot through with blood. I used to admire those eyes. And in all honesty, I used to admire the rest of them as well. But that was years ago, before he brought back his wife from the other side of the sound, and before he had those three beautiful children. Children with eyes as big in their faces as owls do have, and always looking so calm within themselves. That's how you really knew his wife couldn't be one of us. Not even from the other side of the town, by the storm. It's bad to say, but those children are far too beautiful to come from our stock. That's just the truth. McGregor sat there drinking what I gave him and handling his oilskin satchel. After four drinks, he still hadn't said anything. From time to time, he shook his head, as though stunned from a sudden blow. And so, I went back to the stove to stir the fish again. When I lifted the lid and the bright smell of the fish liquor rose up from inside, McGregor groaned. Uh, it's no good. It's no good no more, he said. What's that now? I said back to him. It's too late. It's all too late. She's going to come for me. Who's this? McGregor looked at me, shining with his wild tears in his eyes. My wife, of course. She's coming. I can hear her already, tearing down sheds. 
ripping sails through moored ships, cutting through any poor soul that stands in her path. She won't stop this time. I've kept her too long and she knows it all now. This raving comes over a man if one of them spends too long out in the water alone, caught in bad weather, surviving, but barely. They come back with stories of sea spirits that have appeared to them out on the water. They tell of seeing beautiful faces that appear in the waves, or of seeing naked flesh of lassies slipping under the waves, like between blankets. My mum said, they're just seals that the fishermen are seeing, shining and slippery with the water, but no more than seals. Some of those men get spooked in weather like this. Then you have to keep an eye on when the storm rolls into the harbour. Then you have to keep locked up, keeping away where they can't hear the rattle of the wind on the loose bits of the houses. McGregor should have known better, though. He was born here. No, not those stories. I tell him, slapping him hard on the back, rubbing his shoulders as I would a shank of meat I want to tender up. You know better than that, Will McGregor. It's a storm outside, a bad one, granted, but no more than a wild storm that's blown in, and it will blow itself out again. The storm as if hearkening, began to rattle my boarded-up windows and door yet harder. It sounds to me as if it wants to get in, doesn't it? But it's just a winter storm. Happens every year about this time. Aye, and every year since my wife's come, said MacGregor, holding his beard in a handmade skeletal, tight with his tense grip. Ah, tonight she searched every place she can. Tonight she'll find it again. I thought I'd better not send him back home until he's given up his behaviour. I spooned some of the stew into a bowl for him and gave him some bread with it. Can't you hear her singing my name? said McGregor. He began to shiver. And in that moment, I did think that I could hear something like Mac, Mac, McGregor, as the wind circled round the house. But of course, it was just the influence of a dark night and bad company. Now, why would you be frightened of your wife? I said. If she's out there looking for you, more likely she's worried for your safety. No, no, not her, said McGregor. I kept her coat, don't you see? Her sealskin coat. She can't go home without it. I've hid it this many years out of love. I want her with me. And for a while, that's what she wanted too. She thought she'd lost it, you see. But now she knows it was me. I always had it. Every year she searched for it. She won't forgive me. I know it. You're raving, I said. No one would ever be so angry over a missing coat. I've got two seal skins myself. Gregor reared up at this. He rose from his chair. No, you haven't, he said. He came round the table at me, and I held the metal ladle between us. It pressed against my chest, and his beard rubbed against my cheek. He whispered in my ear, She's a selkie. 
I pushed him off. He was more cracked than I thought. I didn't know that you listened to old wives' tales. I said, and I laughed at him. There isn't such a thing as a seal that can turn into a woman. He flinched at my laughter. I regret it now, of course, laughing at him. I wasn't to know, was I? That I wouldn't see him again. The storm beat harder on the walls of my house. My granddad built this house himself. And it could withstand harder storms than this. I told that to McGregor, but he shook until eventually he could stand it no more and he broke from the chair to get out of the door. I must leave, she knows I'm here, he said as I tried to wrestle the door plank from him. He was much stronger than I. His strength is the kind of strength that you find out at the water, while mine was strictly from working on land. He got to the door and he ran out into the wetness that shot and spat and slapped at me. There was no use running after him. I shut the door up again and said a blessing for him. Find another shelter and his wits. The storm blew itself out that same night. And by the morning, the sun made jewels on pools of water left behind. There wasn't much damage to my house, but I knew that. Happened that McGregor wasn't so fortunate. I wasn't seen in our village again. Neither was his wife. Perhaps she'd gone out in the storm to look for him. Now, that they disappeared would not have been quite so remarkable. As I said, she wasn't from our parts. It's possible they could have moved on without telling folk. They were odd enough to do that. But to leave their three beautiful children behind, that was strange indeed. I heard that the bairns refused to speak a word, not even a sound after that night. Constable said he regretted having to do it, but he'd have to take them up to the orphanage in town. He put them in his car to drive them there himself. He told me that as he drove past the harbour wall, the bairns began to shriek and keen. He said when he pulled to the roadside to try and calm them down, no sooner had he opened the passenger door when they each slipped out like little eels. They jumped over the harbour wall into the water and vanished from sight. Well, there was a search party, but nothing found. No trace. Then an inquiry into the constable. Didn't come out so well. Not that he wasn't believed in as a person. I mean, we'd known him all our life. You couldn't find a more honest man. Still, three missing children. Well, it ruined him from his police duties couldn't find work on a boat either. No one wants bad luck aboard. I gave him help with some odd jobs from time to time. I, I feel for him. It's no way to provide for a family. That was five years ago that McGregor disappeared. We've not had a storm blowing since. Power of Love by Alan Graham.
read by Tony Bell. Alan studied creative writing and economics at UEA, and it's still unsure which discipline relies on make-believe the most. He currently lives and works in London. Tony is an Evening Standard Award nominee for A Man for All Seasons. He's performed all over the world with award-winning all-male Shakespeare company Propeller, playing Bottom, Beste, Autolycus and Tranio. TV includes Coronation Street, Orby City, Midsummer Murders, EastEnders and The Bill. He's also a radio and voiceover artist. Tony! The Power of Love by Alan Graham I had not been working at my new job for long when I first saw her. I could try and pretend to be cool about it, but from that moment I knew my heart belonged to this dark-haired angel, the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. And I resolved that this time I would ride through all obstacles, tackle any hardships until my love was returned. Of course, what was ironic about this was that I'd only just left my previous workplace to escape from past heartbreaks, such as the bitter memories of Evangeline in accounts, who responded to my declaration of love by informing me that I wasn't her type. Sometime later, I realised that Isabel, who I think may have worked in marketing, was a far more suitable soulmate for me until she defined soulmate as more of a friendship thing. <laughs> I had remained in the office, though. Even though my undying love for both had died, I felt it was important to soldier on, to carry my wounds stoically at work, like a true, deeply profound individual. And it was a while, while I was heroically reading the Lonely Hearts column in the company canteen one day, that I chanced upon the following advert. Sensitive intellectual men required for clerical work. Good money paid. Send a self-penned poem with your CV to P.O. Box 455. This seemed perfect for me. I feigned illness that afternoon and raced home to prepare my application. It took me till gone midnight to determine which of my poems I should send to my prospective employers. I opted for one of my earliest works when Emma, my first girlfriend at university, told me she needed her own space. It had inspired me to write all 19 verses of A Gentle Heart Betrayed. <laughs> this work was clearly appreciated because within days of applying I received a letter informing me of my success and stating that I could start work as soon as I was available an opportunity I grabbed with both hands a new office, a new start a chance to reinvent myself from the outset however the new job seemed somewhat bizarre I was expected to work alone in a cramped, poorly lit office and the electrics in the building were decidedly shoddy. Lights would frequently cut out or occasionally flare up so bright they would hurt the eyes. 
But that was not the strangest aspect of working there. Every morning at seven, a young lady entered my office with a pile of papers that required cataloguing. And then at five, another young lady would arrive and collect them. Only the work never took more than two hours to complete. I was beginning to seriously worry what I might do to fill the spare time. At least I was until my angel came that morning with a small bundle of papers and eyes I would climb mountains for. As if compelled by chivalry, I found myself standing up in her presence. But when she looked at me quizzically, I found I had lost the ability to speak. What I, I wanted to tell her was now I suddenly realised that what I had felt for Evangeline and Isabel and Emma and indeed countless others had not been love after all. I now knew it to be passing fancy, merely. It was only now as I beheld her loveliness that I understood true love. This is what I wanted to say, but all I managed was a few puppy-esque whines and a word that sounded like <laughs> Aware of my awkwardness, this goddess amongst women tried to relax me with a friendly smile. This was so lovely it just made things worse. I could feel my face blushing, my knees threatening to give way. So I was incredibly relieved when... At that moment, the lights in my office suddenly flared up to a blinding intensity before cutting out completely. Don't worry, I heard her calm, angelic voice sing to me through the darkness. It's vital I report this development <coughs> as soon as possible. Alone, after her departure, I realised what I could do with all that free time I had in the office. I knew that a woman this beautiful would not be immediately attracted to someone like me, but I had already sensed a keen intelligence in her, uh, that, and that she was more sensitive than most, and I resolved that I would woo this woman with my poetry. I would produce for her an epic love poem, one which would read, she would read, and which, upon finishing, would allow her to see me in a new light. My mask of ordinariness would fall away to reveal my true self. And it seemed from that day on, no other woman came to collect or deliver my papers, allowing me to see my beloved twice every day. It was inspirational for my work. I was on at least five verses a day within a week, and good ones too, with long French words and, and actual proper rhymes. I solved the problem of which angle to take, uh, whether the tone should be courtly, melancholic, sexual, or cheekily humorous, by basically throwing them all in. <laughs> I'm not sure you can put a word limit on true love, but if you could, I'm certain it would be much higher than the 10,000 I'd reached when disaster struck. One afternoon, I was so focused on trying to look as nonchalant as possible when my angel came to collect the papers, I failed to spot 
my own personal writings had been taken along with the office documents. <laughs> I only realised this had happened when I arrived at work the next day and found a note on my desk. Please will Mr. Young Man number 18 please come to the basement as soon as quickly possible. When I tried to work out why I'd been summoned, I realised the awful truth. I did not know how I could fix this, but maybe, just maybe, my angel had read the poem and liked it. Even if I lost my job, she alone would know I had been fired for love. Maybe then she would see me as worthy of her. It took me a while to locate where this office had a basement. Eventually, I found a dingy flight of stairs at the bottom, which was a small door marked, Do Not Be Entering. <laughs> Hesitantly, I descended the stairs and stood outside the door. I could hear a strange, loud buzzing noise from the other side. I paused, listening to it. Then I heard something else, something much worse. I heard a voice, my angel's voice, and she was reading my poem aloud. Panic took over, and before I knew what I was doing, I burst through the door. I was about to shout something when I saw a sight that robbed me of my ability to speak. There in the centre of the room was the source of the buzzing, a large glass sphere the size of a van, full of shimmering colours. Bolts of electricity seemed to be arcing from it in all directions. But the next thing I saw was even worse. Standing next to the sphere, speaking into what looked like a large gramophone horn, was my angel, reading my very own words. It was all too much. I heard her speaking the part of my poem, where I rhymed tryst with... Do not know that I exist. <laughs> and then everything went black. You are probably wondering what it is you witnessed earlier. This was an elderly woman's voice, powerful and slightly foreign. <laughs> well, young man, I will not lie to you. I am obviously thinking that you are quite the most promising recruit we have had for some numbers of months. Where am I? I slurred, trying to shake off the blurriness in my eyes. My name is not important, the voice continued, seemingly having misunderstood the question. <laughs> you would not have heard of it, I think. This is a cruel world where my own genius is not recognized. I tried to say something, but she didn't stop speaking. Finally, I think I have it. The source of near limitless power. You mean my poem? I interrupted. Ha! She snorted, but then checked herself. But maybe I should not be laughing. They laughed at me, you understand? Your so-called men of science, your Teslas and Einsteins. Then I was just a young girl. I told them I had discovered the greatest source of energy this world has ever known. They laughed at me. But you know, I think, I think the ancients would not have laughed. They were of the understanding that love 
was the greatest power. But as simple folks, he did not understand. Nobody did. Till I came along and identified the actual atomic particles of love. My vision was slowly returning. I tried making out the old woman talking to me. All I could really see was that her hair was the wildest blue-gray mess I had ever seen. My biggest errors I made fast, she continued. I attempted to harness the power from perfectly loving couples. Years wasted wiring up happy young people as they kissed, cuddled, celebrated their sheer, shared joy in each other. All a total waste of time. <laughs> young couples in love are just completely useless. <laughs> Then I had, how do you say, then, then I had the, uh, the brainwave, the love particles generated by a loving couple. Their bonds are just ridiculously tightly packed together. No energy can hope to escape. But what if there was no bond? What if the love particles came from one party only? Energy wildly flying into the ether. And this world is so full of the love lawn. These particles, these unrequitants, I would not be wasting of them. I would harness them. <laughs> and you saw it. It cannot be denied. I felt her jab my side with one of her bony fingers. This sharp pain gave me the focus to finally stand up. Angrily, I delivered the only response I could. This is monstrous. You would ignore this? She retorted. You would face all this energy! No. Not my poem. Not her poem. I turned and fled. Out of the basement, out of the building, into the cold street outside. I began walking away as fast as I could. Wait! Wait! I heard a voice behind me. My angel's voice. Please don't leave. I'll... I'll miss you in the office. I couldn't help but pause. Y you will? Of course. She smiled. Just forget about that crazy old woman. Come back and we could still see each other. I could come round to your office every few days. We could eat lunch together. I couldn't stay angry now. <laughs> I had the prospect now of more time with her. Face to face. Maybe this would be my chance. There's so much we could talk about. So much I could tell her. And then she smiled at me. And took my hand. And we walked back towards the building. And in all the windows above us, the lights burned 
brighter than they'd ever burned before. East England and graduated from Durham University with a degree in law. Since then, she's split her time between working as a receptionist and writing paranormal stories. Her self-published book, Shadowbound, is available on Amazon, and she hopes she will write many more. Aged six, Greg was cast as Joseph in his infant school nativity. Somebody put a tea towel on his head, and he became someone else. He hasn't been himself since. He's been contacted for rotary management and has no idea what he's done with his keys. Greg! <clears throat> Fairest of them all by Lisa Stout. As a wizard, I try not to involve myself in relationships. Magic is too unpredictable. One minute you're enchanting a pumpkin and the next a nation is at war because the prince slighted some neighbouring princess to marry a chambermaid. Not my finest moment, but highly educational. Unless you're my goddaughter, don't go expecting favours. So where did I go wrong? It must have been her. Night had fallen when she knocked on my door, demanding to speak to the wizard. It crossed my mind to turn the girl away and have her call me at a more sociable hour. Why didn't I? There was something in her voice, a quality of frail determination. Many people call upon a wizard. Some clients have foolish requests. Others show genuine need. The rarest of all are those who bear the touch of fate. From the eager way my magic surged, this girl was something special. Enter, I commanded. Let me see your face. She didn't hesitate. Now that the girl was in the light, I could see her clearly. Her face was wide, with harsh features. There was nothing delicate in her appearance. The skin, I could see, was coarse and freckled from hours spent working in the sun. Her hair was the colour of straw. Peasant stock, as I'd expected. Only her eyes were remarkable. They stared at me with such intensity that I felt quite exposed. An uncomfortable sensation for any man, let alone a wizard. I need your help, she told me, her harsh accent betraying her common roots. I nodded my head as wisely as I could manage. Magic burnt in my veins, yearning for an outlet. What do you require? I need you to make me beautiful. I cannot explain the disappointment I felt at such a mundane request. My anticipation had been needless. There would be nothing remarkable about this encounter. I can soften your features, I told her dismissively. 
smooth your skin and enhance your cheekbones. Such requests were standard for those in my profession. But the girl shook her head. Her eyes were hard. That isn't enough. I need more than prettiness. I must be the most beautiful in the land. She should have sounded shallow. Instead, I felt a shiver of power as the magic inside me responded to her words. The most beautiful in the land. I pulled my thoughts together with some effort. It's one thing to enhance what nature gave you. What you're asking for cannot be accomplished with a simple spell. Instead of arguing, she met my gaze head on. How can it be accomplished? To indulge this question would be madness, yet I was compelled to speak. With a curse. Then give me that! My breath caught. The thought of, of wielding that much power was an irresistible lure. A decent man would explain the risks. A, a better man would refuse altogether. I stared at this hard-edged creature and summoned a gentle smile. Your wish is my command, I told her. I started with the hair. She watched with eager eyes as I gathered the first ingredient, the tail feather of a crow. Hair as dark as the midnight. Magic roared into being. It leapt from my fingers to slam into her. The girl's lips parted, whether from shock or pain, I don't know. The curse blazed between us, captivating and terrible. When it was done, I, I could barely stand. She looked similarly pale, but... When I showed her to the mirror, her face lit up in delight. The girl in the reflection had lustrous curls. I toyed with the remains of the feather as she left, barely noticing the rot which spread across its once glossy surface. A flock of birds had died to fuel my conjuration. Nothing in my life had exhilarated me so. The next day... I took her to a field and handed her a knife. Cut your hands and let the blood drip down, I commanded. She hesitated. Bleed, or I can go no further. She sliced so deeply, I worried she might hit an artery. Lips as crimson as stolen blood. This time, I was ready for the onslaught. Power ripped through me and I watched entranced as my curse took a deeper hold. I don't know if she felt it as I did, the scarlet plague that took flight into a nearby hamlet. I couldn't take my eyes away from the perfection of my work. Why do you need such beauty? I asked her suddenly. She regarded me warily before her sensual lips curled into a bitter smile. True love, she murmured. That night, I couldn't sleep. The exposure to the curse had taken its toll on us both. There was a strain beneath her blossoming loveliness, and every time that terrible power flowed through me, I was left a little weaker. I knew the situation was bad when she turned to me with her customary bluntness and asked if I was well enough to work. I, I don't want to end up with the face of a frog because my wizard has the flu, she informed me. 
I considered taking a break, but only for an instant. My body felt hollow without the comforting rush of power. I don't have the flu, I told her. That was all I meant to say, but my tongue was loosened by exhaustion. Who is he? I blurted. The man for whom you are willing to go so far. Her expression was unreadable. Here's the king, she said at last. I see. You must really love him. I regretted the comment even as it left my mouth. Her expression tightened and she strode ahead of me down the path. That night, I dreamt of them together. The king had his arms around my creation. I woke in fury and then wondered why I should care. No doubt the curse was playing with my emotions. It took me longer than ever to reach our meeting place and she was reclining in a patch of faded grass. We could stop this, I told her, taking her hand in mine. Even this slight contact opened my senses to the corruption beneath her softness. You are lovelier than ever. You could have your pick of wealthy husbands. She stared at me with elegant incomprehension. You don't need him. My words took on a pleading note, and she laughed softly in a voice like velvet. I'm not doing this for him, she told me coolly, or for any man. Guilt burnt inside me. I'd kept the truth from her. I would do so no longer. There is a cost, I whispered. Her face was expressionless. The curse feeds on life to sustain itself. The effects are subtle now. Soon they'll be more pronounced. Living things will fade beneath your touch. People will sicken. Eventually, all that is near you will perish. Her eyes closed. I felt her tremble. Why do you tell me this now? I was holding her close. The hair that I created brushing the surface of my hands. It isn't too late. I can undo the curse. Her lips were near to mine as she leaned closer to whisper, Look at me. I couldn't turn my eyes away. You would have me give this up. Do you think you'd have cared if I looked the way I used to? No. You barely saw me. It was the magic you wanted. That isn't true, I lied. Her smile was sad. It's too late, she contradicted me gently. And it has been for some time. Your king will die. Her eyes widened at my bluntness, but I, I couldn't bring myself to stop. You will murder him with every loving touch. Can you live with that? She gave no answer. That afternoon I stole the snow from a mountaintop. When I was done, there was a barren peak where snow would never settle again, and the girl beside me had a complexion so flawless that my breath caught in my mouth. If events had been different, if I'd been more honest and she less driven, I might have loved her. Instead, the curse hung between us, as distance 
she had chosen to sustain. It wasn't fair to blame her for my errors. I knew that, but the rejection stung. Wizards aren't immune to pettiness. I called on my powers to summon a rose. It was unnerving how such a simple spell now drained me. She watched in bemusement as I presented her with the flower only for the smile to die as the blossom withered in her hand. They will surely adore such a queen, I whispered maliciously in her ear. She left without a word. I didn't call after her. We both knew that she'd be back. The next days passed in a blur. I sleepwalked through my life, awakening only as I called upon the power. You are my greatest work, I told her, as the curse neared its completion. She smiled her eyes the only feature that still held traces of the peasant girl. For some reason, that pained me. What colour shall you make them? she asked, staring into the mirror as she turned her face to different angles. I favour blue, but you've done such a lovely work, I will leave the choice to you. I made them green, like the grass in springtime. We regarded each other solemnly. Once I am queen, I will reward you, she told me matter-of-factly. It was a mark of my success that neither of us doubted she would have that power. The king will welcome you into his court as a favoured advisor. For once, my words failed me. That isn't necessary, I managed you said it yourself I only did this for the magic her old face might have shown a flinch now she was unreadable the girl I'd known was barely recognisable behind those exquisite features nevertheless she continued in the silken voice I'd given her I would feel churlish not to thank you in the meantime do take care of yourself you're starting to look old. Does it bother you, the death your ambition will cause? She was halfway from the room when my outburst halted her steps. Sometimes, she admitted. But then I remember how it was before, and I forget why I was ever troubled. In her absence, my strength returned to me. I thought of her more often than I wanted, but turned my mind to other tasks. A year later, I heard the news the king was to be married. Part of me wanted to stay away. In the end, I had to know. We'd spun a net of death around him, she and I. It was only just to see the matter through. I watched the coronation from a distance. The king was golden in his armour, but his features were drawn. She glided at his side, more beautiful than words. All around them, subjects raised their voices in delight. Their thoughts were clear. The wisest ruler in centuries deserved the happiness such a bride would bring. My eyes were on the king. Had he guessed yet what her love would cost him? Did he even know why the cathedral was bare of flowers? 
I stayed until the Queen was crowned, but couldn't bring myself to approach the couple. Instead, I slipped out into the night. Goodbye, Guinevere, I whispered. penultimate story of the evening will be Lag by Jim Coburn. be read by David Milton. Jim is a freelance copywriter, scriptwriter and filmmaker based in Southeast London. He has several novels and screenplays in various advanced states of decomposition and is go-to guy for making asset management software sound sexy. David Milton is an actor and playwright and is a founding member of Lyser. His stories, Worms, Feast and Red, were performed here and appeared in Rackney Press anthologies, London Lies and Weird Lies. His play, The Flood, was produced at the Hope Theatre Islington in 2014. His short play, Second Skin, will be formed at Theatre Fimo 3 on February the 15th and 16th. Jim Coburn. Fry stripped naked while the two of them watched, then got dressed again in the clothes they'd brought in a tray. Boxer shorts, socks prized from a lover's clinch, black jeans that had been almost new on the day he'd arrived. The shirt was just as he'd left it, lightly folded to minimise creasing. Its freezing fibres billowed round his frame, caricaturing the weight he'd lost. He found his watch shivering in the toe of his left shoe, which rested with its mate atop his bomber jacket. Nice, said Endersby, as he watched him shrug the leather on. Surprised that one didn't go walk about. There was no mirror, so Fry struck a player's pose and looked at them both with his eyebrows raised. Hassan obliged with a wolf whistle. Now remember, said Endersby, Magic ends at midnight. If you're not by, back by then, you'll be leaving your knackers in that tray. Hassan smiled. He says that to all the girls. Try and be a good boy now. Yes, boss. Fry grinned and gave him a thumbs up. They let him out via the airlock. Sudden oxygen. A drizzle-flecked car park dotted with staff wheels. It was a short walk to the barrier past the HMP logo, then a longer trudge to the bus stop, where a half-dozen day releases were already waiting. Grown men with hardened lives and hardened bodies, joshing like teenagers. After the bus ride, a railway carriage. Cooling towers looming over the fields. Civilian commuters clutching at their bags, staring at the floor or out the window, anywhere but at the day releases lolling on adjoining seats, their banter ramped up a notch for the occasion, loving the effect that they were having on a world that had shut them up for so long. He sat with the group, keeping silent. An old lady caught his eye. He shook his head and smiled. She looked away, relieved. An elbow poked his ribs. Where are you going today, pretty boy? It was Gannon. 
local lad from Didcot, multiple GBH. College reunion, said Fry. Gannon shook his mangy head and smiled. Well, I'll be buggered, so am I. Small world, said Fry. The pack howled together. By the time he reached the city centre, he was alone. Gannon and the rest having dispersed on the arrivals platform, bound for parts unknown. The sun was out, filtering down through young leaves, spraying patterns onto the limestone college walls. High walls, built to keep you out, not in. He watched spicicles slipstream each other around a memorial to murdered bishops and thought of Billy MacLeod, the arsonist, with his dewy-eyed nostalgia for the smell of char-grilled human. The bicycles were piloted by children. Children festooned with college coloured. Wherever he looked, they were there, the fresh-faced inheritors of his city. His city of speared dreams. Dreams shivved in the prime of life. Dreams running red down a windscreen. He made his way along the main commercial drag, fighting the tide of bright eyes, youthful smiles and futures still intact. In a small room above a gentleman's outfit, he sat in a barber's chair, praying for a slip of the blade, then went downstairs to hire a dinner suit. He spent the next two hours alone beside the river, dressed in his finery, his other clothes beside him in a carrier bag as he filled his lungs again and again, trying to stay calm. When he finally moved, the time on the invitation had long since passed. Ten minutes later, he was standing before the studded, weather-beaten gate of his own college, souls teetering on the cobbles, the pointed shadows of the railings reaching across to prod at his heels. The place seemed forbiddingly old school. Nothing like the institution he now called home. More like the scrubs or engravings he'd seen of the Bastille. Inside, the porter recognised him at once, startling him with the warmth of his greeting. He showed Fry a hatch in the ancient wall where he could leave his rented dinner suit at the end of the night and promised to see it return to the shop. It's good to see you again, he said, shaking Fry's hand and pointing to the glow from the dining hall. Fry could hear cutlery dueling above the evening breeze. His face felt strange as if a sneeze was on the way. He walked across the grass. In 17 years, nothing had changed. Candlelit tables ran the length of the room beneath a high ceiling. Poets, prime ministers and a lone blue-stocking saviour of humanity glowered down from the panelled walls. Voices purred in an ambience lubed by preprandial fizz. Fry paused in the doorway to check the seating plan, even though he'd already received it by post and had virtually memorised it in his cell, pretending he wasn't still checking for her name, pretending it didn't cause him pain when it still wasn't there. It was a joke, of course, all of it. A joke that the invitation had even reached him in prison, a joke that the screw who opened it had seen fit to pass it straight to the gov. A joke the governor was probably now telling at parties. His prisoner out on day release to attend a gaudy. 
whatever the ins and outs, permission to attend was accorded before he'd even seen the invite. No alcohol, mind, and no staying overnight. The seating plan had arrived a few weeks later. If her name had been on it, he'd never have dared come. And yet, since it wasn't, what had been the point? (laughs) Nothing he ever did made sense. A couple of diners had noticed him now. A hundred more pairs of eyes might turn towards him at any moment. A last upsurge of pride quelled the urge to run. Take the plunge. You've done this before. Just play it like you did on your first day. They placed him at the end of one of the tables, an empty seat to his left. An ideal vantage point for surveying the room, which he couldn't help doing. Eyes met his and darted away. Her hands waved and heads turned, smiling before swiveling back to ask each other if it was really him. It took a moment or two to recognise each person. The men were slender boys encased in flesh sarcophagi, familiar eyes, chins and noses protruding through a sea of surplus matter. The women, without exception, were almost too beautiful to look at. Beautiful of face, of body, and of attire. He found himself looking at them the way he looked at girls as a teenager, the way you behold an alien or a goddess. An old college fellow sat opposite him. Fry introduced himself. Ah, you're the chap who did some time at Her Majesty's pleasure, am I right? Still doing it, smiled Fry. The Don leant forward with a grin. Might I ask what you were in for? Philosophy, politics and economics, said Fry. <laughs> the old man, a renowned plasticist, pounded the table as he laughed. Fry felt himself relax for the first time since the train. And then he saw her. Barely three metres away at the next table with her back to him. She turned to speak to the man on her right, her lips mouthing in profile. He felt his whole body shudder, heard his mind warble. What, what, before it finally clicked and he started running through the seating plan in his head, he caught her first name, then the duplicated surname shared with the guy who sat beside her. Married. To someone they'd both known. Someone she'd never stopped knowing. She seemed taller, rangier, her hair a different colour. Maybe the rest of the meal was lost on him. Done a kidman, hasn't she? <laughs> he drank the coffee but declined the port. The hall was emptying now, but still full enough to keep him hidden and her close by. He recognised the person who'd sidled beside him, but couldn't remember the name. Another chubby face with too much tooth in the grin. A kidman, you know what I mean? Bleached herself, hasn't she? Started out all flame-haired and rosy-cheeked and ripe, and now, I mean, what the fuck happened to those freckles? I'm telling you, I don't even bother watching her films anymore. <laughs> Fry's gaze flitted from the guy's fat hand to the butter knife. The wood of the table was soft enough for a proper crucifixion. That's why all the mess hall surfaces were steel. 
She was headed for the exit, her husband's hand on the small of her back. Didn't you have a thin with her once? Nicole Kidman? No. <laughs> Fry stood up. He told himself he'd stay until someone offered the words vehicular manslaughter, but no one did. They made him feel welcome, valued, wanted. That made him feel bad. He kept losing her in the crowd, telling himself it was just chance. When he noticed the clock, it was gone 11, and he knew he'd probably miss his train. He retrieved his carrier bag and got changed in the bathroom. As he stashed the DJ in the porter's hatch, he heard his name being called. She was walking alone by the side of the grass. You're not half, are you? Fry nodded. Jesus, we haven't even... Do you have to? One more drink? Her eyes, full on, like yesterday. Fry gulped and shook his head. I'm on a rather tight schedule. I take it you know about. She nodded. Yes, look, um, can you wait here? I'll be one minute. That, that's all, promise. He watched her go. The hair. The shoulders, the calves beneath the hem, he began to panic. She lied. Two full minutes went by before she returned a car key dangling from her index finger. Drive you? She said. Yes, but are you okay to... Haven't touched a drop all night. Her car was a few streets away, a Volvo four-wheel drive with a baby seat in the back. She beat the doors and bade him get in. It won't be a moment. He sat in the front seat looking at the night. He heard the tailgate open, heard her rummaging in the back, felt the quiver of the suspension as she perched on the bumper. The tailgate slammed, the back door opened, and the high-heeled shoes she'd been wearing landed in the baby seat. Fry swallowed, unsure whether he could handle the sight of her bare toes flexing on the accelerator. He tried to stop himself from glancing down as she got in, and when he failed, he saw she was wearing running shoes. Mud-spattered ones with deep rubber lugs of the type favoured by bell runners. The engine fired, so did Adele. The same song Gannon liked to hum when he did crosswords. Na, 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 someone like you. Sorry, she said and killed the stereo. He hoped he knew why. They mostly talked about her, which felt right. He didn't even need to look at her that much. Instead, he thought of the running shoes, saw her contouring at speed along a muddy incline, soles mauling the turf, her bare legs cased in mud, her breath the only sound against the silence of the hills. As she disappeared behind a crag, he waved goodbye. When they arrived at the barrier, the dashboard clock read, 12.07. He nodded towards the razor wire. Quick coffee? She answered with a stifled laugh and a grin full of mischief. Probably best I get back, she said and kissed him on the cheek. He watched the taillights disappear and rang the outer bell, getting Hassan on a double shift. Ta, 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 fry. Very, very, ta, ta, ta. Sorry, boss. Won't happen again. 
I won't tell if you don't. Now get your Jim Jams on and fuck off the bed. Yes, boss, said Fry. <clears throat> Grateful to be home. for submissions has passed, which you have until 1st of March for April's trial and error. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings from previous events, are on the Liars website. And so, the final story of the evening. We Gerald, the Absolute Swine, by Geoffrey Heptonsville. We read by Paul Clark. Jeffrey's recent projects include contributions to the UNESCO City of Literature in Norwich and the Festival of Thirsts. He's had stories performed by Kilter Theatre in Bath and White Rabbit. Recent theatre includes The Night City, shortlisted for the Jasperian Award, and A Dream of Shangdu, published by Gold Dust. He writes for the London Magazine. Paul Clark trained at the Central School and always got cast as a baddie. Or a monster. Or, for a bit of variety, a bad monster. Now a photographer, technologist, and occasional performer, he finds the League stories islands of relative sanity in his life. Paul. <laughs> Gerald, the absolute swine. It's by Geoffrey Hepton's story. <coughs> it was the cloche hat that caught his eye. Adjusting his large yellow bow tie with mauve spots, Gerald turned to call out to the cloche hat. Care for a spin? He said. The name's Gerald, and I'm afraid I'm an absolute swine. <laughs> But I can guarantee giving a girl like you a jolly good time that she'll live to regret. Don't bother telling me your name. I won't remember it. And anyway, the less I know about you, the better. It's your rather delicious body I'm after. <laughs> the young woman in the cloth hat looked at Gerald, especially at his cad's bow tie, and then at his sleek and elegant sports car. It was undeniably tempting. And Lucinda, to her shame, knew all about temptation. Fluttering her eyelashes and parting her vermilion lips, she whispered words that were music to Gerald's ears, swine that he was. Five pounds, dear man, plus dinner at a restaurant of my choice, and a cab to take me home. It could not have been more romantic an offer. <laughs> Gerald thought as the, the tart of his dreams slipped into his car through the door he had so courteously and irresistibly opened. He noted how easily she had allowed a glimpse of silk stocking top to show, if only for a second, without the least embarrassment. 
Rather forward, he thought. Just my sort of little Nixon. Were you always such a cad, Gerald? I, I may call you Gerald, mayn't I, darling? Lucinda asked. Alas, no, um, I, I wasn't always a cad, Gerald said. I had to take lessons to get it exactly right. A chap called Major Bullhorn runs an academy in Cricklewood. Needless to say, he's not a real major. That's his speciality. Bogus army officers as well as bogus clergy. <laughs> I wasn't right for either, so I chose absolute swine <laughs> as my vocation. <laughs> That's how I think of it, you see. I mean, if you're no good at anything, you can be good for nothing. <laughs> That's all you can do. I chose the name Gerald. My, my real name... <clears throat> well... I'm Gerald now, and by golly, I'm a total bloody swine. You see? Bad language in mixed company. That's just for starters. <laughs> the car turned a corner and was soon out of town. Gerald, who sold fake antiques and owed all the town's tradesmen money he could never repay, speeded up as the small country town turned into a vast expanse of open country. Being an absolute swine, he explained, I've taken a, quite a few innocent young things here. I've been soundly horsewhipped by a good many irate fathers, I can tell you. But I have to retain a devil-may-care attitude or I'll lose my status. Oh, I'm the same, Lucinda said. I mean, suppose I were to offer myself for free. Well, what sort of a, a vicious minx would I be then? <laughs> She flashed Gerald one of her coy looks as she adjusted the brocaded hem of her simple but elegant temptress's afternoon dress. I, I bet you've ruined a few men. <laughs> oh, lots. I'm known to every divorce court in home counties. <laughs> a loose woman. Fast and loose. But, she added in a whisper, I can go very slowly if you prefer. <laughs> to his surprise and shame, Gerald felt his collar tighten against his neck. He felt hot. Until that moment, he had always had the better of the women. That was something an absolute swine could pride himself on. It, it wasn't even the pleasure. It, it was more the sport of the thing, the game that he always won. But, but suddenly... So, um, tell me, Gerald asked, hoping to regain mastery of the situation, how did a well-brought-up girl like you become such a tart? Yes, be brutally frank, that was going to knock her down. I answered an advertisement, Lucinda replied, unabashed. I thought I was going to work in a French patisserie. <laughs> I, I soon learned the truth, but by then it was too late, for I had fallen, you see, quite hopelessly. All innocence lost in moments of madness that paid the rent. <laughs> I expect you simply haven't met the right sort of chap, Gerald replied, barely knowing what he was saying before the words were out. What was happening to him? He was losing his touch. I've met all sorts, Lucinda replied, unabashed. <laughs> They're all the same except you. You're different. I don't mean that sort of difference. I mean, well, not such a bad sort, beneath it all. Well, 
I have to confess that I I think I may be in love. <laughs> oh, it happens to the worst of us, darling. It, it's even happening to me. Lucinda's eyes were downcast. She was blushing a little. Uh, call me <coughs> call me Edwin, he said, discarding the cad's bow tie at last and removing the fake moustache. <laughs> Do you mind awfully if I take my spectacles? He asked. I can see much better. The car slowed down as they approached a village whose parish church had a spire like a welcoming finger pointing heavenward. I say, Lucinda said, don't you think we could have a look around that church and recover our lost innocence before it's too late? Edwin at once stopped the car. <coughs> I, I, I need to return the car to its owner. He lives close by. <laughs> but perhaps we could have tea and catch the bus home. A perfectly splendid idea, Lucinda readily agreed. Not before I've inquired about, about the vacancy at the pastry shop. And, Edwin added, not before we speak to the rector of that rather splendid parish church about our future. <laughs> <laughs> round of applause.